0: Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager. Joining me, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Smith. And Sam and I are continuing this week in our series, Desiring the Kingdom, which is a series of podcasts that are a companion to a series of messages by the same name that are going on right now at Ria Vista Community Church. Um, as before, if you're not following along with the messages, we sure encourage you to come to our website or our smartphone app and get caught up on those. But each week, we're going to be, going through the same passages that were talked about the prior Sunday at church and sort of do a deeper dive, look more in-depth at uh, at what's going on, maybe give some context and nuance that couldn't be reached during uh, the sermon. So, Sam, this week we're going to come to uh, 1 Kings chapters 4 and 5, and uh, I've already predetermined I'm not going to try to read any of these names, (laughs) (laughs) I have absolutely failed Hebrew name pronunciation. It's brutal. I thought you've been doing good. Really? You've been, you've been oh, doing all right. Yeah. Man, every every time when I come out of a podcast, I feel like my tongue will never recover. <laughs> it is just I have major tongue cramps. Um, but I'm, I'm, I said that to say this, which is we come here to the to the first part of uh, chapter 4, the first 19 verses of chapter 4 of First Kings. They give you a, a big list of officials and governors. It's essentially being recorded these people that were doing different things for Solomon in different offices and these different governors. A lot of names in there, a lot of job descriptions in there, things that people were being called on to do. If you want to get all that detail folks, by all means, <laughs> First Kings chapter one or chapter four verses one to nineteen, that's that's your Huckleberry. You got all that right there. Uh, but <laughs> looking at that, Sam in an overview sense, um, what are some things that we can pick out from that list of names and offices? What are things in there that interested you? Um, I mean, there's a few things. one of it
1: it points to his wisdom and kind of sharing the the load of of kingly ministry. You remember it makes my brain immediately go back to Moses when he's leading the Israelites out of Egypt and he's in the wilderness and he's just overwhelmed by the burden of managing all of the people and so Jethro his father-in-law comes to him and says hey 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 whoa 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 you can't do this alone you need to appoint other people to help carry that load and so you see Solomon wisely you know this is this is helping us see that he is wise it's continuing the narrative from Chapter Three, where he wisely judged over the two prostitutes, and so now you see a wisdom in this young man surrounding himself with wise leadership um and I think you know that that's to help bolster this idea that he's a wise king mm-hmm. um, There's another one in here that's also interesting is is in um verse four. It lists Abiathar as one of the priests. And if you remember going back a couple of chapters, Abiathar is one of the priests that was uh, sent away. You know, he was disloyal, and so he's he's sent away. And that it's interesting that he holds – he continues to hold the title. And so, you know, there's some commentaries out there that say that Solomon was respecting kind of – you know what we might call the appropriate boundaries of state offices and church offices, mm-hmm. where he's saying it's not my job as a king to strip somebody's priesthood that belongs to God, um, and so he's he's respecting those boundaries. And so, out of the gates, until you get to this one guy, Adoniram, um, the son of Abda, who is in charge of the forced labor. You read that and you go, wait a minute, Solomon is starting to get into slavery and that's one of the f- one of the first times in Solomon's reign where you begin to see some cracks
0: emerge mm-hmm. where you're like uh, is that right? What we're getting ready to read here is something that really paints a rosy picture mm-hmm. of Solomon, that uh, that everything was just going really well for the nation under his rule, uh, prosperous and peaceful and, and happy, um, all these different things, and yet there were still these cracks in the foundation that we're starting to see, and that is, mm-hmm. and that is one of them. Now, he was warned, or the people were warned by Samuel, right, about if mm-hmm. you ask for a king, here's what he's going to do do <laughs>
1: yeah he's he's going to exploit he's going to take all kinds of personal privilege for himself and for for all the people that he's close with but everyone else he's going to begin to exploit and so chapters 3 and 4 it's like you know God is building this great symphony to get you all excited about Solomon but hidden inside the symphony is like there's a couple of flutes that are off note where you're like wait what is that what was that what was that you know <laughs> and and there's clues hidden in this text that kind of make you go now wait a minute that doesn't sound like a, like a wise, wonderful king, yeah. even though it's all the text just keeps, you know, the symphony keeps going, but every once in a while you hear, you know, yeah. and
0: you're like, wait, what was that? <laughs> I mean, anytime that you read that, that a king had put somebody in charge of the forced labor, that's not a good sign. Yeah, that's not a, that's not a good sign. Now you also had uh, when he lists the twelve uh, officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Mm-hmm. You uh, you had an interesting observation about that also. What was it that you were telling me about the twelve officers that was that uh, one of them was there was like one of the tribes that was missing?
1: Mm-hmm. So one of the things that Solomon does. Um, when he when he kind of sets this up each of these 12 regions had a governor So it's like, oh, that's really brilliant. In fact, other countries right at the same time as Solomon is reigning start adopting this policy. So when the Bible says all the countries, you know, all the empires came to Solomon and they were looking for his wisdom and they went home and implemented it, we have evidence of that actually. And so one of those policies was that he had 12 regions that would have a governor and each of those 12 regions was responsible for making provision for the the kingdom one month out of the year. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at the regions, you'll you'll notice, you know, they they don't fall just along tribal lines. They're like areas. Um, And none of the areas that he names, you know, like Megiddo or or other places, none of them fall in Judah. And so while he's from the tribe of Judah, and so he's showing preferential treatment to Judah, they don't have a month of the year where they have to give resources or offer up taxation or whatever this would have been called. And so you get another one of those clues that's, you know, the flute that's a little off key. Uh His tribe gets special treatment. Now, when we get to chapter 12, when the kingdom falls apart, the complaint of the people is we don't feel like we have any part in this kingdom. You know, Solomon took advantage, and now we are kind of going, hey, we want in. We want to feel like we belong, and that's ultimately what's going to split the kingdom apart. But you see... The first crack in that foundation right here.
0: Hmm. That is interesting. I, as I'm looking at it now, I'm seeing that. Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim, and then Ben-Hesed, and a to him belongs Sokak and all the land of Hefer. It's hmm. all based on region and territory and land. You're right. Yeah. That is so interesting. The pharaoh,
1: the pharaoh who reigned in Egypt right during Solomon's reign was a pharaoh by the name of Shishak. And in the, his temple, you know, when he when he was constructing his temple at – now I'm going to butcher this Egyptian name Her, – Heracleopolis, probably pretty close, Heracleopolis. Anyway, it's written on the wall the policy that they had, and in Egypt, what did they do? They divided Egypt into 12 regions, they appointed governors over each region, and one of them was responsible for providing the funding for this temple – one month out of the year, which falls right in Solomon's reign. So Egypt started mimicking what Solomon was doing, which is interesting because the Bible says that kings from everywhere were coming to him for wisdom on how to govern, and you see his his governing philosophy showing up in other places.
0: It's kind of fun. We're talking about, obviously, these you know, these appointees and these couple of things that we're noticing that we're picking out of this with the advantage of hindsight, saying <laughs> saying these are some cracks that are forming in the foundation. And yet the people that were in Israel then um, certainly didn't feel like there was any problem. I mean, they would have been really ecstatic about things. It tells us that in in mm-hmm. chapter 4, verse 20, it tells us that Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. Mm-hmm. They ate and drank. And were happy. So, just in that verse right there, Sam, they should—they were probably seeing the fulfillment of promises that God had made to them.
1: Yeah, and you can't—you don't want to read uh, the story of David and Solomon in uh, in a void of what they've just come through. You know, you got to remember—we're just coming out of the Book of Judges, and at the end of the period of the Judges, this whole place was a criminal, rotten despicable culture that did unbelievably wicked things. Nobody was calling on the Lord. Nobody felt safe. There was no security. They were constantly at war. And now at the end of David's reign, Israel's in prosperity. Now Solomon is working with allies. You know, war is not happening. Wealth is coming in. All the other surrounding nations and tribes are beginning to kind of bow down to Israel. And so, yeah, okay, well, things might not be good. You know, sure, he's beginning to enslave some of our own people. But hey, like, we've got it good. Look at Look at how the Lord is prospering us. And all that's true. And things were really good. But Solomon doesn't reign in the way that God would have had him reign perfectly. But the people were willing to overlook it because, (laughs) you know, what they were just experiencing was far worse.
0: Yeah. Well, and as you know, that as the sand by the sea, that sounds Mm -hmm. very similar to what God promised Abraham: Mm -hmm.
1: your descendants
0: will be that that numerous.
1: So the rest of this, the rest of the chapter, when we're in chapter four, Mm -hmm. starting at verse twenty, going forward. it's very brilliant how they how this is put together. Um, and before we get into it, there's lots of buzzwords that make you think of things that have come before in the story of Scripture. And just a pause for a moment so that you're you're with us as we go through this. The whole story of Scripture up to this point and will remain the story of Scripture till you get to Jesus is comes in Genesis 3:15, where the world is thrown into this fallen disorder. Death comes in, Satan and the serpent's way has its, you know, effect on humanity. Everything is broken and fallen. And God comes along and says, he doesn't give any clues. He doesn't give timetables. But he says, I'm going to send a savior who's going to put an end to the work of the serpent. He's going to be born of a woman. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent's going to, to wound his heel. And so from that point forward, you're like, okay, we here's the clues. It's going to be a human. <laughs> you know, you don't have any more clues than that. And then with Noah, God renews the covenant. And so then you know it's going to be a son of Noah. And then it's like, okay, we still have all of humanity to choose from. Who's it going to be? When Abraham shows up, now the field gets narrowed. You got all these nations all over the earth, and God comes to Abraham and says, okay, through your descendants, the wor- they, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And so now you can exclude All the other nations and bloodlines of the world, in terms of where this Messiah is going to come from, except for Abraham. And God comes to Abraham and he says, You know, I'm going to multiply you like the stars, the stars of the sky, and the sand of the sea. And so when it says Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea, you're going, Wait a minute, that reminds me of Abraham. And it's triggering your brain to think, Hey, Oh, yeah, the the messianic promise. God is going to send someone who's going to be amazing, and he's going to overthrow the work of the devil. And then you stop for a moment. You go, now, wait a minute. Remember when Solomon overthrew Adonijah, who tried to steal authority over the kingdom? And where was it that he had that? It was, oh, "Oh, yeah, yeah, the the serpent serpent stone. stone." And so then Solomon killed him. So now you have Solomon, who kills the king, who tried to take power at the serpent stone, and and uh, so after, after Abraham, you go a couple of generations, and you have Jacob talking about where the Messiah is going to come from, right? He's going to be from the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from the line of Judah. This messianic king is going to come from Judah. And Moses gives clue, and Joshua gives clues, and then David comes, and God gives another one. So, okay, now it's narrowed down to David's line, and here you have the son of David, which, by the way, will still be a nickname that's given to Christ. The son of David is a mm-hmm. messianic term. And so now all all okay. the, the, the spotlights are on Solomon. And if you were faithful, if you were looking back at that promise that God was going to raise up a Messiah that would overthrow the brokenness of this world, all eyes are on Solomon. And man, it seems like God's favor is just pouring on him. Um, and so when it says, you know, the sand by the sea, you're thinking Abraham. When you're thinking ate and drank and were happy, well, what is that? You know, with with Adam, where the first covenant came, they ate and were miserable, right? Yeah. They ate from the fruit and were miserable. Then Noah drank from the fruit and were miserable. But now, ate and drank is eating and drinking is producing happiness, And Solomon ruled, and it gives us this, you know, over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates, which is way over near Iraq, to the land of the Philistines, meaning the Mediterranean, down to the border of Egypt. Well, that's the same exact thing that God promised to Abraham and then again promised it to Moses that this is going to be the size of this kingdom, which in those terms, in those days would have been an impossible thought, an absolutely impossible thought, which um, Solomon brings to pass. It's, and so it's making you think, okay, God is making good on the promise to Abraham. It's it's really fascinating. And one of the ways that he accomplishes that, which is not in the Scripture, but just as a, as a history nerd, I find this utterly fascinating. If you were going to create an empire that was large, Israel is the worst place on planet Earth to try to do this at this point in the ancient world. And the reason for that is is when when David comes along when King Saul comes along the major empires of the whole world were Egypt which is to the southwest of Israel you have old Babylon which is to the southeast you have the Assyrians which are to the to the east you have the Aramaeans that are up to the northeast and you have the Hittites which are directly to the north you've got the Philistines pinning you in to the west there's no way to expand because you've got these big bad kingdoms at every side of you. There's no way that you can expand to the way that it's talking about with Solomon when you're thinking about it. But go, go home and Google this, this thing that happened in the ancient world. It's called the Bronze Age Collapse, and it's one of the greatest mysteries of history, and it comes right before the era of Israel's kings begin to rise. And what happens is all of these kingdoms, Egypt, Egypt, shrinks, is devastated by something. There's all kinds of theories as to why, but it stops seeking to be a foreign power. It reduces into itself Assyria, Babylon, the the Elamites, the Hittites, the Aramaeans, all of these things that had kind of had this stranglehold on the land surrounding Israel— all of these cultures go into, like, sudden collapse, and they think it was probably caused by some kind of climate shift that made everything dry, and there was massive famines throughout the land, and that just devastated all those kingdoms. And in the void of that, Israel grew mightily, but you can just see God's hand of sovereignty who takes all of their enemies and goes, oh, you're going to take a break, <laughs> you know, and just shrinks them. Um, it's really a fascinating period of history where Israel thrives as every other empire is just decimated, not by war, but by some natural calamity. It's really fascinating. Mm. When you're reading the book of Ruth, um, the way that that story starts, if you remember – now, Ruth is you know the great-grandmother of David, so right before David comes along – They leave Bethlehem to go to the land of Moab because they're desperate to find food. The very first line in the book of Ruth is, and now there was famine in the land. And that's probably speaking of this Bronze Age collapse that caused all of these cultures to collapse from being strong, mighty empires to being the Hittites disappeared um, at this point.
0: To the point um, that there was a time when archaeologists didn't think they ever existed.
1: That's correct, yeah, yeah. until they found their capital city of Hattusa. I mean, it, <laughs> I mean oh, yeah, they yeah. do exist. Oh, yeah, the Bible was the Bible right. The right. Bible was right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that happened all over the place. And so when the when the Assyrians come back, they're called the Neo-Assyrians because they had so collapsed to the point of irrelevance. That they're actually called the Neo, the New Assyrians. Hmm. But they disappeared for a time so that God could have his kingdom expand and bless Solomon's socks off.
0: So after verse 21, which talks about the extent of Solomon's kingdoms, the, the the boundaries that you were just talking about there, verse 22 says that Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores, that's about six bushels mm-hmm. of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks and fattened fowl. Mm-hmm. As I'm looking at that... <laughs> I'm like, without, is that provision for Solomon's household? <laughs> Solomon's a big man. No, I'm, I'm like, kidding. I'm kidding. Dude, Solomon was packing it away. That's like six bushels of, f- of flour and six, and uh, wow, that's a lot.
1: Yeah, 220 uh, liters. If you don't know what a bushel is, six bushels is 220 liters, says the note in my Bible.
0: Right. And so the, that's 220 liters times 30, so 660 liters of flour. And then with, uh, boy, see, I, they only, I only took this job, Sam, because I said there'd be no math. <laughs> um, but now I've got 60 times 6, you know, which is 360 uh, cores, and each one being 220, that's a lot of liters, uh, of meal. Uh, so obviously this was for Solomon's household, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this is what, is this sort of describing what, each of those regions would be expected to send him to sustain his his household, his his government. Correct. And okay. so,
1: one of the things that you had, and this this is true in virtually every kingdom in the ancient world, um, and David, you'll remember, David had had somebody that he thought fondly of, and he said, "Hey, I want him to eat at the king's table." And so, the idea is, if you're in with the king, you're put on you know the equivalent of a government pension we got you. We're going to take care of you. You can come to the king's table and you share in the abundance of what we have. And so again, when you read this, you're like, "Holy cow, God is so richly blessing Solomon. But how is he using that blessing?" You know, it's he's he's living in abundance and the people who are at his table are living in abundance. Um and this is wonderful. You know, God is God is really blessing him and this is a good thing. But is Solomon using that blessing? Rightly, or is he saying, "Hey, you know none of my buddies in Judah have to pay taxes. All you guys have to pay taxes, and right. we're living as my dad used to say, high on the hog <laughs> i still don 't even know what that means, but
0: well, high on the hog I mean you know it 's a pork fat thing, a lot a lot of bacon going on there, being high <laughs> okay. on the hog, so um, yeah, that is interesting I mean you, you, I think about the fact that again that 's part of what Samuel warned the people what's going to happen when you had a king is that guess what when you have a king he's not just going to take your, your sons and your daughters to be his servants he's going to come take a lot of your stuff you know and that's what was that's what was going on here you know it's like it's exactly what Samuel told the people was going to happen to them mm-hmm. um, so then verse 24 says for he had dominion that's an interesting word over yeah. all the region west of the Euphrates from Tipsha to Gaza over all the kings west of the Euphrates for he has dominion. That almost sounds, I don't know, that that just sounds like what God told Adam, mm-hmm. you know, subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth.
1: Yeah, So so this covenant that God makes with Adam, you know, that you're to go out and rule the earth and subdue it and make it fruitful – when it's no accident <laughs> that this language is throwing in because it's making you think, wait a minute, God has made good on his promise to Abraham in Solomon. Now it's starting to bring up some Adam language. You know, Solomon is having dominion. He's succeeding where Adam failed. Um, you'll notice when we get to the end of this chapter that he's got mastery of all the animals and everything else. And it's like, wait a minute, he's he's succeeding where Adam failed. It's, it's totally trying to gear your mind to think, could it be? Is this him?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: is it going to be Solomon? Is Solomon going to be the
0: one who who fixes all this? Then it goes on to emphasize the peace and safety, So that he had, and he had peace mm-hmm. on all sides around him, and Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan, even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. So again, picturesque language here, living under mm-hmm. the vine and under the fig tree, I mean, I think fig tree, I think Adam and Eve are making fig leaf garments. And now when I think vine, of course, I immediately go to Jonah. But as you were saying, there's probably a a better explanation or better picture of the vine than that.
1: So, so this expression is going to carry on even down to to Jesus's days. This is the idea of prosperity: is that every man is under his vine or his fig tree. You'll find this in the prophets, like Micah four. Uh, Jesus, when he calls it, I think it's Nathaniel. He says, "I saw you under the under the fig tree," and it's Nathaniel's blown away, and then follows Jesus, but. But anyway, what this is specifically doing, remember it just evoked this language of Adam, mm-hmm. you know, dominion.
0: Dominion, right? And so
1: now it's it's bringing up, you know, what was Noah's great fall? Noah's great fall is after the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat, Noah planted a vineyard and he got drunk. And he passed out naked in front of his kids. And you're like, well, okay, there's Noah's great fall. What was Adam's great fall? Well, it was eating from the tree and then hiding behind, you know, fig tree, fig leaves. And so here it's saying, you know, what was the curse to Noah? What was the curse to Adam? Now every man is finding blessing under the vine mm. and finding blessing under the fig tree all the days of Solomon. And so it's, it's reversing everything. And, and he's, again, getting this messianic tone. Could it be? Is it Solomon? Yeah.
0: I, I can understand how they were starting to think that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then verse 26, we see another one of those cracks in the foundation. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. That's a good-sized <laughs> army of your special attack force chariot group um and those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon this those officers is going back to uh the 12 regions that we were talking about mm-hmm. it, occurring in the first part of the chapter supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table again that's what you were talking about at the king's table yep. government pension government pension right Each one in his month, they let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. The thing that the two things that strike me with that passage right there sam number one is that's a lot of stuff <laughs> you know uh, um even for a region you know it's like i'm hearing about all these provisions and now i'm seeing this the the number of mouths that needed to be fed by all that stuff like solomon's got himself a pretty good-sized government here obviously he had never heard of the principles of low taxes and small government um you know he, he, solomon not a libertarian i'm just saying not a libertarian um So he is, you know, as I look at this, I think that's a lot of stuff. And the other thing is, is that it just seems really one sided. It's like you 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 just get the impression here. They let nothing be lacking like they're stepping up. They're making the effort. It doesn't say anything about and they were happy to help.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right, right.
0: It feels oppressive,
1: doesn't it? It does, and you can tell, that you know, there's something about the way that Solomon is doing. When you read this, you're like, oh, wow, this is really great. You know, 40,000 stalls of horses. Man, God was really blessing him. Uh, and all these chariots and horsemen, and man, look at the size of Solomon's army. This is just really glorious. But again, you hear the flute out of tune, <laughs> you, you know, going on in the symphony. And what I mean by that is when God speaks to Israel way back in the days of Moses. So we're talking, you know, almost 500 years before Solomon. God came to Moses and he says to him, When you come into the land, this is in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. It says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in safety, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. But then it goes on and it gives some instructions about what that king is to do. For starters, he has before he can even begin his reign, it was a requirement that he would write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priest. And so at some point, if Solomon was obeying the commands and statutes, which it claims that he did— he would have sat down and he would have written out all of Genesis, all of Exodus, all of Leviticus, all of Numbers, and all of Deuteronomy, the writings of Moses, and he would have written down what I'm about to read to you. In verse 16 of Deuteronomy 17, it says this: Only he must not acquire many horses for himself.
0: Hmm.
1: Right. That's pretty pretty
0: straightforward and explicit.
1: Yeah. Like, don't. Why? Why would God say that? Well. What are you tempted to do if you have a massive army? Be
0: you, you dominate and conquer people. You attack people.
1: You dominate. You conquer. But where's your trust
0: in yourself and that army, man? You're thinking you're that's right.
1: Hey, I don't need the Lord anymore. We got this and and by the way that will plague israel again and again and again and and sure. there's you know there's there's passages of scripture that talk about do not trust in armies and chariots your your trust is in the lord let him fight for you it's his battle to protect you now that doesn't mean you have no standing army but you don't put your hope in many horses and solomon is just <laughs> loading loading up with um, a lot and, of
0: horses <laughs> yeah
1: and, and later on, verse seventeen, what what else do you find in that particular passage? It's fascinating. It's like Solomon is going through a check mark, you know, putting a check mark next to all the ways of not to be a king. Yeah. But it says, "And he shall not acquire many wives for himself." <clears throat>
0: Ooh, <don't. laughs> Thanks for playing, Solomon.
1: <sighs> yeah. Or he shall not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. We're going to get into that in the chapters ahead. Solomon gets massive massive wealth of silver and gold. And the idea of this, and I want, I want you to, to hear this, what the Bible is saying is, is there's no fallen person that can be trusted with this amount of power. Mm-hmm. Um, he needs to be humble. He needs to trust in the Lord. If you have excelsi- excessive silver and gold, guess what a king, a good king, should do with excessive silver and gold? Lift everyone else up. Sure. Like you you don't you don't say, Hey, look at me. I've got this power and so I'm gonna build things for me and puff myself up and acquire many wives and horses and chariots. The idea is a good king humbles himself and lifts everyone else up with the with the ways that God has blessed him. And that we're beginning to see in in First Kings chapter four here. That's beginning to not happen. Solomon is beginning to enjoy the excesses that God has given him, rather than being just in the way he shares those blessings.
0: Right. Well, that that was even something that uh, Paul's uh, instructions to Timothy, First uh, Timothy chapter six verses seventeen to nine through nineteen. Paul told Timothy, as for the rich in this present age. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Mm. Um, I thought that was just such a great nugget of advice there because, you know— they're not speaking against having wealth. They're not saying that you should that God doesn't want you to have wealth or doesn't you know want you to be prosperous. But what they're saying is God gives you these things so that, as you were saying, you can lift everybody up. Mm-hmm. If the king is wealthy, it shouldn't be the king's wealth. It should be it should be what the king uses to bless everybody else. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So so when you remember going back to the very beginning in Genesis three, this the Messiah who comes to crush the head of the serpent you know that's the part we want to look at and say oh my goodness he's so triumphant look at him crush the head of the serpent you know he's he's conquering and he's great and wonderful but the flip side of that passage is and he gets stricken you know he takes he takes a wound himself he suffers in order to rescue and and Solomon, you're waiting to see, okay, if he's following that pattern of Genesis 3, where does his suffering come? Where is he being wounded? Um, and, you know, it would have been hard to give away wealth. It would have been hard sure. to sacrifice himself in some ways uh, to lift everybody else up and to show himself to be a Deuteronomy 17 type of king. Mm-hmm. But you don't find where Solomon gets wounded. Yeah, that that's the missing element. You it know, is. That, he's not. He's not the Messiah. And you're going to see how that chasing after self-aggrandizing stuff, refusing the wound of leadership,
0: godly leadership, that ultimately wrecks his kingdom. But you can understand how the people of that time would have thought, "Hey, Solomon could be that Messiah," because. Mm-hmm of all of these things that we've just read. And then in verse 29, it goes on to talk about, and God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure mm-hmm. and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and hemen Kalkal and darda the sons of Mahal, those are apparently very famous people um, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations and and even that as is, is poking even that is poking
1: your mind back to all of the scriptures that had happened before because the great enemies that had um put Israel in real pain were Egypt, right? But Solomon's greater than Egypt. Or you think of the people of the east, like the Babylonians going all the way back to the Tower of Babel and some of the other skirmishes that they'll have with the people of the east. No, no, no. Solomon's greater than them. It's like, okay, so now we're surpassing those that have been the historical enemies of Israel. We have safety because our leader is smarter than them.
0: Mm -hmm. And it tells us in verse 32, he also spoke 3,000 proverbs – We have, of course, the book of Proverbs, right? That's all Mm -hmm. Solomon's Proverbs. And his songs were 1,005, um, which is another interesting thing because, I mean, that's obviously—we don't have 1,000 psalms. So, you know, he was absolutely prolific in his creation of music. Um, So tremendously creative. And then verse 33, he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. As I read that, I'm like. This guy was like, had it all. Like he mm-hmm. had this, you know, he had all these wise and, and insightful sayings. He was incredibly creative and musical. And yet he was really into knowledge of the natural world. It was like really sort of concrete. He was interested and studied and he knew things. This guy really must have seemed to be the complete package to them.
1: Mm-hmm. And this, again, is taking you back to Genesis 1, 26. And it's a God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and listen to the instruction. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock over all the earth, and every creeping thing. There you are. So it lists the four things. So what do you find here? You find Solomon over the beasts, the birds, the creepy things, and the fish. Yes. It's saying he is fulfilling the Adamic mandate.
0: And verse 34, and people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So that's what you are referring to is that the wisdom of Solomon served as a model Mm -hmm. in the other kingdoms of that time. Um, So this was pretty much the zenith of it. And yet, as you say, there were those out of tune You know, notes Mm -hmm. that uh, should have uh, you know put people off a little bit had they been paying closer attention. Somebody should have come up and you know put their arm around Solomon and said, "Solly, my boy, (laughs) can we have a chat about humility here?" Because I'm just thinking maybe you're you've lost that aspect of it, which is really interesting to me because uh, when you read the Book of Ecclesiastes, you get the sense that. Mm-hmm. That Solomon, when he sort of came to the end of himself, had a very clear perspective on that kind of thing. Um, I, you know, when I read Ecclesiastes, it does not it, – it, it certainly feels to me like the wisdom of the teacher, like the teacher has been humbled mm-hmm. by life. So um, I'm, I'm just going to guess and say Ecclesiastes was obviously then written very, maybe very late in Solomon's life or certainly later in Solomon's life.
1: I I mean, that would be my guess for sure, Um, because he's learned all this stuff that I chased after didn't fill me. Didn't fill me, Um, and his the things that Solomon has written they're they're really fascinating because you read his life story, um, and his his he kind of collapses at the end, and all of this kind of catches up with him um, and comes back to haunt his kingdom. But he writes Ecclesiastes, which is telling us nothing outside of the Lord satisfies nothing wealth, power, wives, nothing satisfies. And so that's the one thing that he writes. But then the other, one of the songs that we do have uh, is the Song of Solomon. And it's this unbelievably wonderful romance between a king and his bride. And it's this monogamous, beautiful, greatest of all songs in the Bible. It's really beautiful. I'd love to do a podcast series just on that song. Um, But Here's a guy who's got 700 wives writing about monogamy and romance, and it's like, I think Solomon got to the end of his life, had tried everything else, (laughs) and realized, I missed it. Like, if only I had given my life to the Lord, I would have found satisfaction rather than writing Ecclesiastes, and only I had given my heart to one I wouldn't have felt so empty as though I – and as an opposition, I gave my heart to 700 wives and 300 concubines. So it's like at the end of his life, he's going, if only I had done what the Lord had called me to. Hmm.
0: So now we come to chapter 5, and we enter Hiram, king of Tyre. Um, And it says that uh, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, you know that David my father could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. I want to pause there for a second because when you read uh, David being told why he wasn't going to be allowed to build a house for the Lord. Um, and when David even repeats that back at different times to the elders of Israel, um, it's it's very active. It's like David, you've spilled blood. You're you were a man of war. Um, whether he was always doing what God told him to do or not, the point is he had blood on his on his hands. David was a a, a man of war, and a, it was going to be a man of of peace that would build the temple. And when I look at um, Solomon here, Sam, it seems like Solomon is kind of. Um, David-splaining, you know, it's like mm-hmm. it wasn't that David was a man of war. It's <laughs> because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. So it's like David didn't, wasn't really a man of war. <laughs> it was all forced on him. None of this was his choice. Do you get the hmm. sense that Solomon is doing like a little David apology here?
1: I, I've never noticed that before, but yeah, you're right. I, I think so. It just seems that way to
0: me. It's like Solomon's going, "You know, David, yeah, he got surrounded and he just had to fight, you know, he had to do these things, but mm-hmm. then God put them under the soles of his feet." Yeah.
1: Um, That's fascinating. That that imagery by the way is so rich in the ancient world. Um the the idea of being under the soles of the feet and that that'll be big in the Psalms as well. Um making the earth a footstool for his feet when I remember going to the Cairo Museum in Egypt right before the revolution happened over there. I mean, we were there like just weeks before everything got really violent in Tahrir Square. And going through the museum, one of the things that you notice about all of the pharaoh's furniture, mm-hmm. or even their sandals, yeah. is they would have the images of their enemies stitched into the bottom of their sandals so That's that they walked on them. And so you'd see Semitic people and you'd see the Nubian, the darker-skinned people on the bottom of their sandals and they would walk on them. And also the the, the footstool would be made with the image of their enemies holding up the, the place where you rested your feet. And so your feet would be on your enemies. And you find that in a lot of the ancient furniture. And so that idea of putting them under the soles of his feet was very common in the ancient world. But I do like... That Solomon is saying, hey, David didn't win those battles. The Lord put them under the soles of his sure. feet. So at least, at least he's given him that.
0: He gives God credit for that. That's <laughs> true. Uh, but then verse 4, Solomon gives you that little check-in that lets you know how he thinks things were going. He says, but now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. So Solomon basically saying, hey, but for me, Hiram, things are pretty good. By the way, just hitting on that. God has given
1: me rest on every side, that's pointing you to two different figures in, in history. That word rest comes from Noah. So he's saying the Lord has given me, Noah, like rest on every side. But that was also the promise of Joshua when he came to conquer the promised land. Joshua's great promise was to achieve rest, um, and he never could ultimately achieve that rest. And But now Solomon is saying, not only have I given you what Noah couldn't do, But I've given you what Joshua couldn't do. There's rest from war. Um, Again, could it be? Could it be? Is he the Messiah?
0: Well, and that there's neither adversary nor misfortune. I'm like, okay. So not only are there nothing, not only do I have not any enemies, but nothing's going wrong. Everything's great by that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So then he goes on in verse five. He says, "And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father." your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Now, therefore, command that the cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set, for you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. And I thought, that to me... Is you know, it starts off sounding like a like Solomon's being a little imperious, you know, it's like, now therefore command mm-hmm. that the cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. And then at the end he gives them that compliment like, because you know, no one knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. Um, <laughs> the Sidonians was the note I had on that was that they were the Phoenicians, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tyre and Sidon, yeah. Yeah, and the Phoenicians were really known for their uh, incredible boat building and and mm-hmm. woodcraft. I mean, these people were – these were the serious experts in anything involving crafting with wood.
1: Yeah, uh, so they're right north of the Philistines. So if you imagine the Philistines on the Mediterranean coast to the south, the Phoenicians, Tyre and Sidon come up north, and they're on the Mediterranean too. But they were they were known to be expert builders, and the the wood, the cypress and cedars that came from Lebanon were were super famous.
0: Yeah. So it says that uh, Hiram hears the words of Solomon. He rejoices and blesses the Lord, um, which is kind of interesting. I mean, again, you don't think of of the kings of other nations as being kings that that would recognize the Lord and bless, but obviously that's the case here. Bless the Lord. Um, And then he basically says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you uh, I'll do all as you desire in the matter of cedar, cypress, timber that his servants will bring it. He's going to send rafts into the sea to the place you like basically Solomon, whatever you want, I'll do it for you. Uh, And it says that, you know, that he does all of that. Um, and then Solomon paid for it. <laughs> many, many, you know, we talked about, uh, how many cores of, of grain and so forth. So we ended up with verse 11. Solomon gave Hiram to pay for this 20,000 cores of wheat and 20,000 cores of beaten oil. So, uh, basically, Solomon paid for everything that Hiram sent him. It was a business relationship. Uh, but at the same mm-hmm. time, you know, I, I just, I get the feeling that, that like, there's there ought to be something about this relationship maybe that i'm missing because it just sounds like such a a straightforward business transaction is there Mm -hmm. something here that i'm missing are you going to tell me that there's like there's some i just feel like there's some great symbolism if i try to move past this i'm going to hear the voice of Caston smith in my head going "No, no no mark now remember (laughs) and you're going to tell me about 12 things i missed so what in the world is going on
1: here Well, it's interesting, and I think this is the Lord's sovereignty, that when it's time for Solomon to build a temple, right? So this is the first station. Before this, you had the tabernacle, which was a tent, and the Lord's glory went around Israel. But now is the first time they're building a temple, a Mm -hmm. set place in Jerusalem. This is going to be a house for the Lord, not a tent anymore. This is going to be a fixed place where the Lord dwells with his people. And there's a couple of things going on here. Um, First off – He's building a temple. Well, what is that? Well, this is the one place where the glory of the Lord from heaven kind of meets earth. It's, it's this, <laughs> this meeting place between heaven and earth, which is a restoration of some sense of an Eden, right? A place sure, on earth sure. where God dwells. So there right. you go again. It's like, oh, are we going back there? Is he, is he reversing everything? But one of the things that I love about this is when he's building the temple for the Lord, you'll notice it's not just Israelites. Um, he involves Gentiles in building the temple. Now, hmm. that's going to be a theme that's going to play out for the rest because when Jesus, by the way, who is the true temple, um, dies and gives us his righteousness, we then become temples of the Holy Spirit. We find that out in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6. We become the temple's and it's not about bloodline, right? That the God's temple will ultimately grow to include both Jews and Gentiles, right. men of mm-hmm. all nations. And so the pattern here is, who is it that God puts it on Solomon's heart to help build the temple? Gentiles. Hmm. This is not a purely Israelite ownership thing, right? So he brings Hiram in. It's interesting, Josephus, who's a first century historian, writes that these letters between Hiram and Solomon about building the temple were still in existence in the first century hmm. when Josephus lived, which is kind of cool. They got destroyed, obviously, but they were still in existence in the first century when Jesus was living, um, which is kind of fun.
0: That is interesting because it's obvious that, that, that people thought highly enough of them to keep them as mm-hmm. souvenirs or national treasures or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that is interesting. Uh, or maybe they just built presidential libraries back then also.
1: <laughs> wow. And one of the, one of the other things that you find in Solomon um the Egyptians are giving Solomon cities rebuilding cities like making gifts of you know incredible things to Solomon you get it from Tyre you're getting it from Sidon you're getting it from Egypt all the different kings are pouring in gold the queen of sheba will pour in gold and so Solomon is utterly beloved by all the nations of the world like they they just can't get enough of him but by the end of his reign, you find that his own people, or at least 10 of the 12 tribes of his own people, feel like he's oppressive. And so it's almost like, you know, you get the impression Solomon, to the rest of the world, is really magnanimous. He is, he's actually a great king to foreigners, but to his own people, not so much, at least eventually.
0: I wonder, and I may be reading between the lines here, but you mentioned uh, the fact that the collab- the Bronze Age collapse might have been due to some kind of, of uh, drought and famine, and mm-hmm. that caused the collapse of these. It's interesting that what Hiram wanted Solomon to pay him with was, uh, it, it says in verse 9, he, he concludes with, after he says, I'll do all these things, he says, and you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. And Solomon paid him in food an enormous amount of wheat and oil says it gave him this year by year and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon you know what you were saying before is that the surrounding nations sort of collapsed because of a lack of of food there Mm -hmm. was this great famine and that God was blessing Israel they had plenty to plenty of food in Israel at that time um, and it seems like there's some substantiation to that here because that's what Hiram wanted was give me food not gold Mm -hmm. not silver Give me food. And it says that Solomon paid him in food. Um, so that may also be one of the reasons why all these other kings like Egypt is like, yeah, Solomon, would you like some cities <laughs> over here? By the way, um, we're kind of hungry. Do you have a snack? You know, <laughs> it, he, it, it could have been that, that yeah. uh, Solomon was supporting a lot of these kingdoms with food.
1: Yeah. And one of the things, just getting back onto the archaeology thing, not to not to nerd out too much, but when they go to these different cultures and when you're when you do archaeology you dig down and when you find a particular layer where right. a civilization an ancient civilization is buried one of the things you can do is look at the the fossils that remain there to see what kind of plant life that was there you can you can sometimes find even like you know what kind of pollen was happening to learn what kind of plant life was growing and when you get right to the strata where this bronze age collapse happens they notice a shift where before there's a lot of plant life that required a lot of water, rain, you know, different climate. Where after that, they shifted to plants that would grow in more arid climate, like mm. olive, olive trees and things like that. Um, that shows something happened right at this time that dramatically changed the, the landscape of the ancient world in the Near East, mm. um, much to Israel's advantage. All the other nations just <laughs> fell apart.
0: So we come then to the end of chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. It says, King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft numbered 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. There would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home, which some commentaries, by the way, suggested that he didn't let them not work when they were back home. One commentary was suggesting that that's a hint, anyways, that Solomon was having them work twice as long on his palace as they were like, go work a month on the temp on the house of the Lord, and then come home and work two months on my house. I don't, they were just suggesting they use the word hint, I'm just, but I just, you know, it might be possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it says that Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country besides Solomon's. Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work who had charge of the people who carried on the work. At the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house dressed with stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gabal did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. So Hmm. here at the end of Chapter 5, we have a description of Solomon using forced labor, uh, which is, you know— We've talked about this. A lot of things that happened in the Old Testament really kind of slam up against our modern sensibilities. And mm-hmm. I, we're going to read this and we're going to say, so Solomon used slaves. Is that what we're saying? Um, so is that what we're saying? That Solomon made mm-hmm. slaves out of the people?
1: They were, I mean, they would have been compensated, but they were forced to do it. I mean, it's forced labor. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah. And one of the, th- this is the downfall of some of, by the way, like we're picking on Solomon. And one of the reasons why we're picking on, Solomon and four and five is if you read through this without hearing those out of tune flutes, you can get the impression, oh my goodness, Solomon is just amazing and he's wonderful. And by the way, in large measure, Solomon is sure wonderful. Sure. I don't want you to hear that we're just knocking Solomon and he's terrible. Not at all. But he gets this reputation that, you know, he's just wonderful, and then all of a sudden you get to the end of his life and you're like, Wait, wait, they weren't happy, they didn't like him, what happened? <laughs> um, and the Bible is intentionally dropping clues all along the way that as God is blessing his socks off, because remember what Solomon said at the beginning? God lays this burden of leadership, and Solomon's like, I, it's too much for me. I'm but a little child. I need your help. Please give me wisdom to lead these people. And Solomon expresses all the right heart to lead these people. And God says, all right. I'm going to bless your socks off. Mm-hmm. Like, it's going to be more blessing than you could even imagine. I'm going to shrink your enemies. I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to load you up with wealth and provision and plants and food and everything else. And then Sol- what what you notice is Solomon never has that moment where he goes, you know what? I'm going to sacrifice for my people. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm going to use my leadership to bless them. Um, instead, it becomes forced, you know, forced labor. It becomes, you know, how many people can feed at my table rather than sharing um, in some sense the wealth of the people or letting them keep their own labors or being fair in how he taxes, you know, different people. It becomes more self-serving. And so the whole point of this, like we've mentioned this a million times, is the whole point of the Old Testament is to make you thirsty for something better. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you get to somebody like a Solomon and you're like, dude, this guy's incredible. And yet, yeah. you know, at the end of his life, he leaves you thirsting for a better king. Joseph, which we're talking about in our Wednesday night Bible studies, is this amazing guy. And he actually does lay down his life and he endures injustice and he all this stuff. But the great flaw of Joseph is that when he spares the world. By giving away grain, he takes their money, he takes their livestock, he takes their land and reduces the Egyptians to slavery. So when Joseph gets power, what's his great flaw? He reduces the people of Egypt to slavery. What mm-hmm. does Solomon do? He reduces the people to slavery. Mm-hmm. Now, that's set against the backdrop of what? A different king, Jesus. Right. What does he do? He takes people and he sees that you and I, Mark, we are utterly enslaved, we're enslaved to our passions, we're enslaved to this notion that we've got to be satisfied somewhere in the world, and so we run around serving all of our appetites, enslaved by sin, enslaved by the appetites of things in this world, and what does this king, Jesus, what does he do? He comes into the world, he leaves a throne, which, by the way, is way better than what Solomon has. It makes Solomon's kingdom look like a dumpster fire. (laughs) It's true. He leaves his throne. He comes down into this world, setting aside all privilege and all wealth and all praise and all accolades. And what does it say? He empties himself and becomes a slave, a servant. Why? He pours himself out so that you, in all of your slavery, can be exalted to royalty, freed from those passions, to know that you're utterly satisfied in him, that you stand it's it's not a king who's saying work for my you know just work and you know for my good it's a God who pours out his good so that you can share in his inheritance, so that you can, as, as Thessalonians says, so that you can share in his glory, that you can be with him forever, everyone around his table. There's no exclusion. It doesn't matter what race or tribe or gender or whatever you come from, there's nobody off limits. He doesn't play favorites. The only thing you need to sit at the king's table is need. When he sees you coming, he embraces you. He longs for you. He chases after you. He's an entirely different kind of king than Solomon. He comes into the world and experiences what it's like to be homeless. He experiences what it's like to suffer in the ways that we do. Solomon did not do that. And so the people couldn't relate to him. And so that's what ultimately becomes the undoing of his kingdom, but hmm. we serve a king so much greater than Solomon. And by the way, when you look at that king's, there's no flutes off tune. <laughs> you Not know at all, there, yeah. There's nothing out of key. He's just utterly good and glorious yeah. and entirely humble, even though he's God.
0: It's it's mind blowing. Is there anything else that we want to talk about before we leave chapter five here?
1: Oh, probably a bunch of stuff is going to come to me <laughs> as soon as I say, "Ah, oh, we're good. No, we're good." Um, okay, it's it's giving you this pattern that's making you think. Could this be the guy? Could this right. be the guy? I mean, it's he's he's fulfilling all these different things, sure. and yet the sinful nature that's in even the best of us. None of us would would fare better than Solomon. Yeah. Uh, The sinful nature that is in the best of us are incapable of managing blessing in a godly way. We stumble. We make it about ourselves, and we need a Savior, and there's only one in the whole of Scripture that proves to be that unfailing hero, only one.
0: Well, we'll let that stand as our last word on First Kings chapter four and five, uh, folks. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us; that uh, it was profitable for you. Um, we want to invite you to correspond with us if there's a question that you have, or something uh, that we've said during the podcast that uh, you feel like you'd like to either respond to, or something that piques your curiosity in some way, and you'd like to hear more about it. Our email address is out of water at com. That's R I O Vista church.com which is where you can find all the back episodes of out of water at rio vista church.com slash out of water you can also find us on apple podcasts on google play on spotify and in our rio vista church smartphone app which is available at an app store near you sam and i'll be back next week with first kings chapter six and many things about temple furnishings (laughs) and we look forward to seeing you then